0: Well, thanks for worshiping so well this morning, Grace family, and if you would now turn in your Bibles with me to Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. This morning is a special morning for a number of reasons. Uh, It's a special morning because it is the conclusion of our Ruth series, which is bittersweet for me. I'm excited to come to this conclusion, and I'm going to be sad to uh, depart from this story. It's a special morning because we got to celebrate the Lord's table together, and it's a special morning because I get to preach to my entire family seated in the front two rows. All of our kids and my mom and dad are here, so, you know, maybe give them a grace welcome just because that's how we roll. All the preacher's kids right now are just really happy with their dad. (laughs) Every story has at least two levels. Every story has at least two levels, I think, especially true stories like this one. There is the present tense level of a story. In other words, it's that story standing on its own, operating in its own historical context. We have to just let it be what it is, right? We see those characters, some of them exemplary, some of them cautionary tales, and we have to let that story breathe in its present context. And then there's another level to almost every historical story, which is the timeless level. We know this about the stories that we tell. We can look at those stories, we can see them on their own, but then there's things that we can learn and glean and have implications not only for our lives, but for all of history, really. And I believe that the author of this story in Ruth wants us to see both of those levels operating. In four, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17 He wants us to see the present tense reality of the story. Wants us to see these exemplary characters and one cautionary one. And in chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, I believe that he looks beyond his own present experience and the experience of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and wants us to see the timeless level and implications for this story. Or more importantly, what God is doing as he has written this story and is letting those ripple effects flow out. And all of it, (laughs) all of it's coming from a little town called Bethlehem where the sovereign light of redeeming love will pierce the darkness of the world. Then, in that time, and for all of eternity. That's where we're headed. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now as your people having heard already of how good that you have been to us in Jesus. Having heard that from your word. Having heard it in song. And we ask now, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see marvelous things from this story. In Jesus' name, amen. So, two weeks ago, the last time we saw Boaz, the end of chapter 3, the sun's initial rays were just reflecting off the horizon of Bethlehem, providing the palest of light by which he could make his way back to their small town. Remember, he was walking back from the threshing floor, headed back into town. But it didn't matter that it was dark because he'd been walking these paths for decades, which was fortunate because I don't think Boaz was paying the slightest attention to where his feet were falling. I think his mind was absolutely consumed with planning in this moment, which is understandable. There was a great deal on the line and much to be considered. Imagine all that Boaz, if you would, with me is thinking. Imagine all he's thinking as he heads back to Bethlehem. The complicated laws laid down by Yahweh through Moses and the requirements for a goel, a redeemer, and a levir. There was the matter of a relative who was closer than he was, who had the first right of redemption and therefore of marriage. Is he going to lose his chance for happiness with Ruth? How in the world is he going to get this man to forgo what seemed like such an opportunity to him for good and generosity and happiness? There was a need for witnesses for this event and whether or not those witnesses would approve of Boaz's plan. There were the lives of two precious widows on the line. There was the reputation of an entire community to care for its own and do the right thing by looking out for the outsider among them. There was the issue of land remaining in a clan assigned by Yahweh so very long ago. And there was the threat that the name of this family line would go off into oblivion. That's a lot to be thinking about as you're walking back to town. That's a lot at risk. What's, what do you do? Well, you trust in Yahweh. That's what you do. Had Yahweh not already been at work? Of course he had. I mean, can you imagine Boaz thinking as he thinks about all of those potential complications and now he just sets himself to trust in Yahweh. Yahweh has already blessed me with wealth so I have all I need and I'm ready to give and risk it all. Yahweh has blessed me with influence and a good reputation so I'm ready to call together all of my peers who have trusted me all these years to do the right thing and I think they'll follow me. Yahweh has orchestrated the breaking of a. Famine and the return of bread to our land, which drew Naomi home in the first place, with Ruth following her. Yahweh made her show up in my field that faithful day for me to arrive after she had, to for, for her to risk to declare her intentions to save not just herself, but her family name and her land. The sovereign light of God's redeeming love and providential hand and manifold grace has been shining through these dark days in an abundance of provision and care, why should I worry? I think that's what Boaz is doing in this moment. That's what we should do when we've got lots of complicated plans and things to trust. Trust. God is going to work. He's sovereign over us in the valleys and the mountaintops. And with these thoughts, Verse 1, Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Okay, why did he do that? Because the town gate is kind of like, think of it like historic downtown Salida, right? It's where the business is done. It's where all the gossip is happening. It's where everybody gathers. It's the happening place. I mean, it is the Cafe Don of Bethlehem, right? Business is transacted. Elders are sitting there. So it's no surprise that that's where Boaz would sit and wait on Yahweh to provide. Just then, verse (laughs) 1, and there it is again. You know, just a coincidence. Just so happened that the close relative passes by. Just then, the family redeemer that he had mentioned came by, and so Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Okay, so here's a little spot where we have to kind of dig into how words are used, right? And we do this a number of times. We want to see what are Hebrew phrases, and I think that happens right here. There's some nuance here that I think we miss in the English translation when Boaz says, Hey, come here, friend, and sit down. Because this phrase is actually an incredibly complicated phrase and very rare in the Old Testament. I think actually this is the only place this phrase that is being translated friend in the English translation shows up in the Old Testament. But it does show up in lots of extra-biblical literature. And it means it means something as I was reading and trying to figure out exactly what it meant reading it in the Hebrew. One Hebrew scholar said it this way. Think of it, the, the closest translation would be in our, in our English language, a Mr. So-and-so. You're going to note that in a book that's very concerned with names, we never hear the name of this man. And so this idea, the phrase that it's trying to portray, if we stuck with most of your English translations with the word friend, I think the tone that would be coming through, as we can learn by studying languages sometimes, is what's the tone of what he's saying? The tone that's coming through is Boaz is saying, hey, hey, come over here, friend and have a seat now you may be asking okay that sounds like maybe a lot of potential mumbo-jumbo there with all your translations and your languages and but test me by the context Why do I think that's the way Boaz is kind of confronting this guy? Because think about this for a minute. Everybody in the community knows that this guy is a closer relative, that he's first in line to redeem this couple. Everybody, these two widows, everybody knows that Naomi and Ruth have come back into town, right? We've seen that in our story. Everybody in the city knows, knows their situation, that they are destitute widows, that they have to glean in fields to try and just get some food on the table. Everybody knows that, including this guy. And he hasn't done a single thing at this point to help them. He was first in line. He hasn't lifted a finger. He hasn't helped in the slightest way. So I ask you, if you are Boaz... And you care about Ruth and Naomi the way that he already cares about Ruth and Naomi. I mean, I think that this guy's probably getting off pretty easy with, hey, Mr. So-and-so. I mean, what do you think you would want to call this guy if you were Boaz? Verse 2, Boaz doesn't sit with him long. Then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And for all of you, all you Law and Order fans, right here is where we'd hear bum bum. <laughs> because what Boaz just did was call court into session. He created a jury box, he called the 10 key leaders as witnesses to a kind of a trial that he is going to hold now. He's going to apply the laws of Moses to the situation of Ruth and Naomi in this land in kinship redemption. And he needs the town elders to sit as witnesses and to determine the outcome and to seal with their authority what Boaz wants to happen. And I think this would would have drawn quite a bit of attention because they don't have law and order. They've got the city gate. That's interesting to come there and see what's going on in town. Verse three, and Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi who came back from Moab. So, so imagine, like, again, we got to put on our imagination caps, right? You're sitting, some walls that are around the city and they come to this central gate and there's all these kind of benches that are sitting around and 10 guys have sat down now and Boaz stands up to address this guy who's sitting all by himself. All these people again, And now people are starting to stop, right? They're they're starting to stop and pay attention because 10 elders just got together and Boaz is holding court. You know Naomi. Here he is all by himself in front of everybody. Who came back from Moab? She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. Now, I wish we had all kinds of time. I wish we had like two hours. I would love to give you an analysis of the importance of family lines and the importance of the land to the people people of Israel, because we don't really understand that today. We don't have connections to land. I mean, we just move around. We're a very transitory people. That was not the case back then. There were very specific plots of land that were given to specific tribes and clans and families ordained by Yahweh. And you didn't want those family lines to go out and that land to be separated from those family lines. That was really important. So this is not a minor issue, what's happening right here. But we don't have time to deal extensively with that. But what we can say is that Boaz just said something like Naomi has a right to a parcel of land connected to her family and it's going to be lost to them. But if a kinsman redeemer will do something about it and step in, it's going to stay in the family. Yay! And this means that that man stepping in would get to expand his estate provided there are no children, of course. Are you interested? Now, can you imagine this guy? He's just been called out in front of everybody. Everybody's waiting on his response. And he's trying to do a quick bit of calculation here, right? Okay, so I know, I know that I could expand my estate. And I, I'm looking down there at Naomi, and she's had better years. The good years are behind her. I don't think any kids are going to happen, so my estate wouldn't be threatened. She's not going to demand any kids of me. She's too old to have kids. This seems like a pretty safe bet. I'm standing here in front of everybody. I can take care of a couple of widows. I get some land, expand my estate, don't have to add any kids. Verse 4, the man replied, All right, I'll redeem it. Hook set. (laughs) Boaz has a fish on the line. Then Boaz told him, Of course... Your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow, and that way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Uh Uh-oh, did you just see a big bear trap go down on this guy's ankle? And he is caught in front of everyone for what he hasn't done, right? He hadn't lifted a finger to this point. And for what's now being asked of him, he's now just agreed to do what he should have done in the first place, and it's more than he thought that he had agreed to. And everybody knows it. And everybody knows what he should do. I wonder if you could hear a pin drop in that city grate right now, like everybody on the edge of their seat, and do you see like a slow bead of sweat starting to trickle down from this guy's forehead as he recalculates what just happened? As we watch him thinking with that slow bead of sweat, I'd like to pause the story right here. I want you to think about this along with him, what he's realizing he's being called to. He has the opportunity to do the right thing, even though it may cost him, right? So it could be that he marries Ruth, she bears a son. The land that he just bought is now going to go with that son, and he'll not only have lost his investment, but we don't know anything about this man. He may not be married. He may not have any children of his own. So his entire estate could pass to now what would be this son with Ruth, who would be his heir, and everything would go to this kind of new family line that's being created. It could cost him dearly. And the it here is redemption, right? That's what's at stake. Will you redeem them? Will you redeem the land for them? Sometimes redemption is costly. To buy someone out of poverty, to welcome the outsider, to provide rest and a home and safety and security and he could do all of that right now in this moment in the midst of dark days. He has the opportunity to be an emissary of the sovereign light of redeeming love from Yahweh. A a pipeline of grace. That's what's before him, through him. He could do that for a couple of widows in their community. A couple of widows, by the way, whom the community esteems and values. He could secure a family. He could secure land. He could secure the goodness of that family on that land as a happy steward of God. All of that is a potential for him. And spoiler alert, what he doesn't even know, what no one in that community knows is that he has an opportunity right here to buy in to bringing the Messiah into the world. That line. He he could be a part of that. Friends, we just don't know sometimes what our decisions in the present may have implications for the future in ways that we have no idea So, what will he do? Verse 6. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. Come on, man. <laughs> like, dude, really? You had a shot at doing the right thing at making a significant difference in somebody's life? And he blew it. Verse 7, now in those days it was the custom in Israel. This is a little parenthetical for all of us to understand. Now in those days it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. And in a story so concerned with names, Mr. So-and-so walks off the stage of history nameless. Never to be heard of again. And with a heart bursting (laughs) in the sovereign light of redeeming love, Boaz, who's really happy that this guy blew it, verse 9, said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. And so in sharp contrast to Mr. So-and-so, this happy in Yahweh man, this good man, this righteous man has exceeded the expectations of the very law that he had just argued before all of these witnesses and has secured for the family name, the possibility of an heir. Did you hear him? He's confident. He's confident that she's going to have a son. And he has secured the family attachment to the land of promise, right? This is a promised land. And he has now secured this family on that promised land. And significantly, because I believe Boaz, I think at this point we're now starting to talk romance story. I don't think we were in chapter 2, but I think Boaz has fallen in love with Ruth at this point. And at long last, I mean, think about this. Think about the providence of God in the fact that Boaz is even available. This is a wealthy man. This is a man of influence. And in his old age, he's still there waiting, a character in the story God is writing for Ruth at this moment. At long last, how happy is this guy? I have a wife. (laughs) I heard my oldest son get up from coffee yesterday and say, I love my wife. Oh, I made my heart happy. It is a good thing. What does the proverb say? It is a good thing for a man to have a wife. Remember that, men. And... They lived happily ever after. Or maybe there's more to the story. <laughs> what happens when Boaz says this? The crowd in the gate erupts in joyous approval, calling down three distinct pre- blessings from Yahweh on this family. In other words, they pray. They all get together and have a big prayer meeting. Verse 11 Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah from whom all the nation of Israel descended. Now, this is an absolutely stunning blessing that they're calling down if you just think about it for a second. They just said of a Moabite, Yahweh put her in the pantheon of the matriarchs of Israel, put her right up there with Rachel and Leah. Who are Rachel and Leah in the story? They're the two ladies from which all the tribes of Israel have flowed. The nation itself. And they're saying, God, bless her like you blessed Rachel and Leah. Do you see the complete reversal of fortunes that has happened in Ruth's life? (laughs) She was experiencing difficulty at the hand of Yahweh in dark days and now on the other side of suffering and trial and death and loss in return for her loyal love. She is being fully integrated into this community and in a way that they don't even understand it, right? In a timeless way into the history of Israel itself. Yahweh answers their prayer in a way that they don't even contemplate. Verse 11, may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem, a prayer of blessing upon Boaz and God will do that verse 12 and may Yahweh give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez the son of Tamar in Judah a prayer of blessing on their home and God will do that because nine months later verse 13 so Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife when he slept with her Yahweh enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son Okay, I want you to imagine Ruth in this moment. Imagine imagine you live in a culture that places an incredible amount of value and worth on you as a woman in your ability to bear children for your family. Imagine that that hasn't happened your entire life yet. Imagine that you were married for 10 years and your womb was barren. And now, in a way that we haven't seen since chapter one, God directly steps into the story. What does it say? And Yahweh enabled. Yahweh did this. Yahweh healed that which was broken, Yahweh filled that which was empty. Can you imagine how happy Ruth is in this moment? An heir. That which is empty is filled and the family name is secure and the land is secure and the family is secure. And once again, the crowd erupts, this time made solely of ladies. It's kind of like one of those 1950 labor and delivery events. The guys are out having a heater and all the girls are inside. They erupt in joyous approval, calling down, again, three distinct blessings from Yahweh on this new little family. See her there? Ruth, Holden, little baby, ladies gathered around. The women of the town said to Naomi, praise Yahweh who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel and may he restore your youth and care for you in your old age for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. There's a lot going on there in these ladies in this little prayer group, isn't there? Let's start at the end. They recognize. They reach back to about a year ago, and this may have even been painful for Naomi, right? Like to remember a year ago, but they reach back to a year ago, and they remember when she walked into town and said, call me Mara, call me bitter, for Yahweh's hand has been raised against me. And they're like, listen, you lost two sons, and look at what you have now. You've got Ruth and a grandchild, and she has been better to you than seven sons. Friends, we cannot discern the plans and path of God. We can't. She, she couldn't see a year ago this event, could she? She couldn't see through the darkness. She couldn't see through the pain to this moment right now of joy. And did you notice this as well? Did you notice who the women proclaimed as Redeemer? I've not seen this before in the story. I hadn't noticed this. Yahweh has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth to be a restorer of life. And may he care for you to to be a sustainer in your old age. I mean, we've already seen in this story that Boaz was a redeemer and that he opened up a pathway for all of this. We've already seen that Yahweh opening a womb, placing a child here to be born in Bethlehem was a redeemer. But neither Boaz nor Yahweh are what these women are talking about right now in this moment. They are talking about the child. A child born in Bethlehem. A child who will become famous. A child who will be the restorer and sustainer of life. A child who will redeem. Hmm. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Verse 16. And Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breasts and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last, Naomi has a son again. And they named him, Obed. And he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Isn't that beautiful? Do you have your imagination caps on to see this woman who was so absolutely devastated? Probably about a year and a half before. I mean, isn't it Isn't it amazing just in the present tense level of the story? How many grandmas out there, right? Like, I mean, how great is it to take a little grandbaby and just like cuddle them all in and they got that new baby smell on them? And you put your nose like in their neck and just shower them with kisses because the thing about babies that's so absolutely wonderful is they cannot defend from kisses. Right? They just, he just can't stop you. And you just get to foot as many as you want. And here is this woman who was so broken and she's so happy into just glory and revel in that moment in the present tense of the story. And then the author just grabs that little bit right there and just telescopes it out into the fullness and the timelessness of what's going on because this, this child is named Obed, this, a name that means the servant of Yahweh. And, and this author wants you to see that in the very ordinary lives of these ordinary people in a small town, he is doing far more than they could imagine or think in the dark days in the clouds of the judges To bring about a line of kings, the line of David, before Israel even has asked for a king. Still in the time of the judges, God is already on the move. He's already displaying the sovereign light of his redeeming love. Even while the known world is awash in chaos and upheaval and danger and disaster, in the midst of that, God is working. And so now at the encouragement of our narrator, we're drawn forward in the story. Down through the ages and the generations from Perez to Hezron and Ram and Aminadab and Nashon and Salmon and Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David. And and he draws us to keep going and moving in the story to another time, very dark days in Israel, the time of Rome, a time that we wrongly see sometimes, I think, through the lens of Hollywood. We look at Rome and we see kind of glittering pantheons, right, and columns and people walking around clean-shaven and togas. And Rome was, a, was an empire in a time of rampant corruption and death and deviancy. It was an absolute cesspool. Dark days of oppression once again for Israel Judea and Samaria and for Bethlehem where once again in the story this little town will hold within it a very ordinary family and Yahweh will once again open a womb this time of a virgin. A young maiden in a he will open her womb in a far more fantastic way she will conceive of a child of the Holy Spirit of God himself and she will bear a son who will also be called the servant of Yahweh and they will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins and redeem them he will be a redeemer for them You see, God has authored the story and foretold that all of these things would occur. He has directed the story, exerting his sovereign will to bring it about, and he becomes in a fantastic way an actor within the story, stepping into the story as the Redeemer. And not just for this family, but for the whole world to give them a name. (sighs) Beloved son, beloved daughter, to give them a land, a new heavens and a new earth that they will one day enter forever. And if we keep going in the story, we see the sovereign light of his redeeming love in the darkest day in all of history where the clouds descend on a hill named Golgotha. And this Yahweh that Naomi felt had raised his hand against her raises his hand against his only son and strips him of everything and makes him empty of everything, empty of life itself. But it was on that darkest day with Jesus at his most empty that the radiance and brilliance of the sovereign light of the redeeming love of God shone brightest for the tomb was full and then three days later it was empty. And in this sovereign display of power Yahweh raising his son from the grave, triumphant over sin and death. In this act, we can steal from the ladies and say, praise Yahweh who has provided a redeemer for all of humanity. This child, now man, now risen, has been made famous in all the world across all time and is the restorer of life. He is the sustainer of his people in every single dark age including, dear friend, this age. This age that is at time filled with darkness. Listen, family, where do we turn when a gunman, not much more than a child himself, opens fire on children? Children. Robbing them of life. Where do we turn when a madman with an entire army at his disposal unleashes war on an entire country, slaughtering men and women and children in staggering numbers? Where do we look to when in our own small town there are murders unanswered and children abused and drugs misused and Jesus refused? Now, I will tell you, I don't have all of the answers for such difficult questions and I certainly don't want to offer pat ones. Right? As Christians, we don't want to offer pat answers. And I have not been allowed into the councils of God Almighty. But I know this much. I know this much is true family and I believe it with all my heart. Even when I don't see it, God is working. Even when I don't feel it, God is working. He is moving in our midst. He is working in this place and in this town and in this state and in this country and world. And the pot doesn't get to say to the potter, why have you done what you have done? And so this creature certainly doesn't get to look to this creator and say, why have you done what you have done? Because I do not sit on his throne, and I do not see as he sees, and I do not know where he is taking things in the short term. I don't. And neither do you. So you shouldn't promise people that you do. But I do know this I know how the story ends, I know where it's headed, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And I know that he will deliver every single person who has believed in him, all of the outsiders and all of the sinners and all the ones who were alone and all the ones who were without hope. All the ones who didn't have a family or a place to call home, who didn't have someone who would welcome them. And he took in every single person like that who believes in him, and he makes them a part of his family. He redeems them, and he gives them a name and a place. Takes them out of slavery. It's gonna give them, it's gonna make this place new. <laughs> it's gonna be with them Forever. I know that. And I know that vengeance is his. And it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And all of those who bring about darkness in this world will be ushered into a day of darkness that will never end. Jesus has promised it. Putin will have to reckon, he will have to reckon with the Christ on Judgment Day. Jesus has promised that his sword will drip with the blood of his enemies on the last day. So as our time in this story comes to an end, here's what I want our church to be. Okay, here's a takeaway from this story. Well, first, here's the thing I don't want us to be, all right? I do not want us to be Mr. So-and-so's. I do not want us to pass up on opportunities of self-sacrificing love. I do not want us to pass up on opportunities to redeem in this world, even if it's at great cost to ourselves. Rather, I want us to be a place where anyone, and I know you're not gonna be shocked by this, can move one step closer to Jesus. I want all of us to be the agents of the sovereign light of the redeeming love of Yahweh. I want us to be like Boaz. I love that Jonathan said last week, <laughs> Emily, that you said he wasn't being very Boaz, or Rachel, that you wasn't being very boaz <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's not awesome that he wasn't being boaz but it's awesome that he wants to be that way. And I want all of us to be that way. I want all of us to be like the one who came from Boaz's family line. I want all of us to be like Jesus. I want us, like the women in this story, the townspeople in this story, to be unashamed, mouth-filled with praises, worshipers of Yahweh. Unashamed, praisers of Yahweh. I want us to declare that he is working in these dark days and to believe it. Declare that in these dark days, family, to this world. I want us to trust Him for the outcomes, even when we don't understand the path. I want us to be the place where people who are hurting and people who are beat up and are empty, people who are outsiders, people that nobody else cares about, people who don't look like us or talk like us or act like us or believe like us, people like that can come here and feel welcomed and loved. That's what I want for us. I want us... I want us to treat people who aren't family like family so they'll become in the family of God. That's what I want for us. I want us to bathe them in the good news. Wave upon wave of grace because that's what I need. I need wave upon wave of grace. I want them to experience this fellowship as a safe place where those whose lifestyles may be notorious in our community can come here without being stared at and judged. I want to be known as, wouldn't it be great if people in our community said, oh, Grace Church, yeah, that's where all the sinners go. That's where people who are really messed up go. Yeah, let's make that on it. Let's make a t-shirt with that on it. Grace Church. Grace Church. Sinners. <laughs> want us to be the place where people have time. They have time to look like family. No deadlines on growth. A lot of space for complicated people to rework their lives at a deep level. Urgency, but not hurry, because no one changes quickly. Naomi didn't. And God was patient with her, wasn't he? And he will be with you too. Grace. This is what Jesus did for us. He bathed us with the good news. He gave us a safe place of acceptance and he gives us time to grow and be conformed into his image. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He is the sovereign light of redeeming love in a dark world. Worship team, would you come up? And and even though in our sin we we wander away, right? Like into emptiness. And sometimes we're just bitter. He chases us down and, and makes us full with every spiritual blessing and promise. And I love Jesus. And I want more of him. For myself, for my kids, for my mom and dad. And for all of you guys, let's go hard after Jesus. All right? Let's do that.